Hi guys, um, pleasure meeting all of you uh, on a new episode of Osawul's podcast. And today uh, we have, I think, a very much special guest because he is not um, just a great professional in information and trust and safety sphere. He is also our advisor in uh, Osawul, and he is also a really big friend of all Ukrainians, and uh, he contributes so much into the Ukrainian victory. Um, please meet Nick Belogorsky, um, ex uh, Google's director for trust and safety, board advisor in Osovol, and um, head of Nova Ukraine, a uh, charity fund dedicated to helping Ukrainians. So, Nick, like you have so many activities, can you please just give a broad introduction to people talking about more a bit like your experience? Just like present yourself so guys have a bit more um, color on your background. Of course, happy to do that. And thank you for inviting me to this podcast, uh, Mitro. Um, I was born in Kharkiv. I grew up in Ukraine, then I immigrated to Canada, and then I landed here in Silicon Valley where for the past uh, 15, almost 20 years, I worked in various security, security companies and also big tech companies. I was at Microsoft, I was at Facebook, before it was called Meta. I was at uh, Google most recently. And I've also been active in helping Ukrainian entrepreneurs uh, by being mentor, advisor, uh, an investor. I've been a prolific angel investor with uh, more than 40 portfolio companies. Uh, and of course, about nine and a half years ago, I started Yevromaidan uh, San Francisco, which uh, later became a charity we call Nova Ukraine. And we focus on providing humanitarian aid and supporting education in Ukraine. So that organization has uh, raised over $90 million so far. So I live here in San Jose. And I'm excited to be talking to you today. Thank you for um, uh, dedicating this time to our conversation. So, like, I will try. I will start maybe talking about more about your career, because like trust and safety and cybersecurity always works a bit on a background. Like people don't see, you know, like shiny reports what these professionals do. So, if you could explain what exactly as a director of, for trust and safety. Uh, you was doing in Google on your latest position, like you know, just just at least what actually guys like you do, and to demystify it for people who may not like really understand the background in a big corporate. Sure, uh, you know, I can tell you what I thought it was, and then what it actually turned out yeah. to be, uh, because it wasn't quite the same. You know, most of my career was spent in fighting bad guys on the internet, uh, guys that hack companies, so guys who write computer viruses. I've been a security researcher, an analyst, um, an anti-malware specialist. So when I uh, approached the position at Google, that's what I hoped that I would be working on, is on security. Uh, and I joined as a director of trust and safety, and I spent four years there. And I managed quite a large team uh, of security engineers and analysts. But trust and safety at Google was not quite what I expected. Um, the I'll, I'll give you one anecdote. The name of the team is now Trust and Safety, but previously it was called PQO, uh, and there was a story that uh, you know Sergey Brin uh, once was giving an award to to a member of this team, and he was on this big internal meeting, and he said, "What is PQO? I don't know this team." And after that, the team decided to change name because like if the founder doesn't recognize it, and PQO stands used to stand for product quality operations. And that gives you a little bit more insight into what the day-to-day -day work is. It's product quality operations, where you have 
you know, more than 15 different products of uh, Alphabet that have billions of users. So a lot of, a big attack surface, right? And uh, all of the issues with these products uh, in terms of both uh, attacks, but also violations of uh, policy uh, or any kind of uh, safety issues for the users, anything that goes wrong with any of the products, our team gets involved. And our team day-to-day -day work is operations, keeping things running, avoiding uh, safety issues, avoiding um, avoiding bugs, escalating things. It's it's very operational role. And we spend a lot of time on incident response at Google across these different products. And we also work with the engineering teams on harden the product and improve the product so that future attacks are more difficult to perform. So that's that was my experience at Trust and Safety. I, I was responsible for um, Android uh, and all of, the, all of the trust and safety issues for Android applications. And I was responsible for uh, the part of Google uh, Chrome web browser, which is called extensions. Um, so for all of the extensions that people create, uh, my team was reviewing them and uh, shutting down uh, either malicious extensions or extensions that were uh, going outside of what's allowed in Google. So I was very heavily involved in interpreting policy or uh, even advising the folks that create the policy for these products because a lot of things were like definitely bad and malicious other things were clean and good but a lot of things were kind of gray on you know hard hard to say if this should be allowed or not and this is where i got involved and we we had you know many meetings about exactly what do we want uh, the product to allow and and how to communicate this to our users. So our users for our team largely were the developers. We were the part of Google that was working with the developers of extensions of Android apps and kind of uh, giving them feedback on what's what's the right way to create for these platforms. Um, can you give an example of kind of interesting, this gray thing that you actually resolved? Because it's not always, always obvious for like, you know, for the users, what could be a gray for the platform? Yeah, well, you if you build an app that you know clearly steals users' data, that's that's malicious. But what if you build an app that tries to make money uh, through advertising, uh, and you know Google already makes money through advertising, so you try to take Google ads and you replace them with your own, or you kind of try to generate clicks on these ads uh, that are not real, you know, fake clicks, uh, creating ad fraud. You know, those are also bad, but less obvious bad. And then there is also um, various ways that these apps, you know, even clean apps that didn't do anything malicious, uh, how they marketed themselves and how they uh, sometimes partnered with uh, search engine optimization companies and, and other folks. You know, marketers on the internet sometimes have very, very low uh, standards of how they perform. So we we could see a lot of spammy techniques and, and things that we just don't want to have, even though they're not. Uh, virus and not, not malware per se, but they're degrading the user's experience and how they're promoting themselves, right? Where, they, uh, where the extension could uh, pretend it's something else in order to get installed, and then when it's not, it's doing not what it's performed to be. So that, that could be an example. Yeah, and you mentioned that you was working in Facebook as well, so could you please share a bit more about your experience in, uh, in, in, in Meta, what is called now? Yeah, when I was at Meta, it was still called Facebook. I joined in 2010. Uh, I spent about uh, two years there. And I was the, it was quite interesting for me because at the time, Facebook was still a private company. And uh, LinkedIn 
and uh, Twitter, I think, were, were just about to go public. So as far as I know, I was one of the first people with a security engineer, with a malware uh, a kind of analyst background that was hired in any of these Web 2.0 companies. We called them Web 2.0 at the time. And uh, my goal was to uh, help our user base at Facebook, which at the time was maybe 300 million people. So it was big, but not quite you know, mm -hmm. half of the that is now to protect their data uh, from specific botnets. Uh, so attacking uh, groups of gangs, uh, some of them from Russia, some of them from other countries. So when I, you know, in my first day at Facebook, my manager put me in the room and put on the whiteboard five names. And those are the five names of uh, botnets that I was to be fighting and ideally learn how to shut down. And we just worked down through the list of researching into these botnets, understanding who are the users who are affected by these. As an example, one of the biggest ones was called Coopface. And Coopface is Facebook backwards. So Facebook, Coopface. Coopface was the name of this Russian-created uh, uh, big computer virus, computer worm, that was spreading through Facebook messages. You know, And you, you may have, even now, almost 13 years later, I sometimes on Facebook get a message from someone and I instantly recognize that's uh, that's a virus because it tells you like, Oh, is this you in this photo? Oh, check this out. You know, it's something very short and a link to a site that you don't recognize. So now we are kind of trained to not fall for that. But at the time, this was happening. Uh, people would click on these messages. They would get infected. And then their computers would send messages like this. So it proliferated through the social network very quickly. And it was making a lot of money on, uh, on stealing people's data. So that's what I was doing at Facebook at the time. I worked both with the site integrity team on creating the countermeasures to these uh, viruses. I also worked with law enforcement. I can't speak too much to the detail of that work, but suffice it to say, I fought the hackers and I fought the, the abusers uh, and helped build cases against them. And I, I also tried to lead some of the efforts on taking down botnets because botnets you know, are networked systems that rely on servers and if you can track these servers and you can you know send the season desist or, or somehow get the providers to take down these these infrastructure nodes you can actually shut down botnets so that's some of the work that i did um, it's interesting to ask you about the evolution of um this kind of trust and safety and protection in a global companies because as you mentioned it was like working at the very beginning of Facebook, obviously have like a network and friends working all over the place. So I'm wondering, could you please like share how the industry has changed since like 2010 till now, like what is changing and uh, where it's moving? Well, I was at uh, Facebook before Cambridge Analytica happened, right? That was one of the turning points when the elections and the interference and Kind of the whole trust in Facebook went significantly down, um, so that's that's one of the things that changed the industry. And and I noticed that myself when I came to Google, how different they were in in uh, their perception of privacy and and how serious they were. Like when I was at Facebook, the the story was take every piece of data you can, you might need it later. You know, even if you don't need it from the user, take it. We will build something uh, wow. to do with it later, right? And there was no uh, no concern about it. Whereas when I came to Google, and granted, this was after Google had a share of their own problems and, and settled with the government. So they, they learned on some of the mistakes they did. But when I was working at Google, 
I could see very big part of the company was focused on collecting as little as possible from the users and avoiding any kind of privacy violations or even, you know, if they get hacked, what is their uh, attack surface? What is their risk? What data can be uh, stolen from Google? Well, only the data they collect. So the less you collect, the less risky that you will uh, be in trouble. So that, that was a challenge for me because I was trying to work on trust and safety. And sometimes to keep users safe, um, you want to get some additional data. Like if, for example, uh, I worked on Safe Browsing API, which is a product that powers the browsers. When you click on a link, it checks if that link goes to a known uh, malware site. So this is a database that is shared and is integrated into most web browsers. So for that to work, we had to effectively crawl all of the internet and, uh, um, and analyze all of these websites and find malware in them. And to do that, you know, when when you do an analysis, when you do in research, every piece of data is crucial to make a correct decisions. You know, to improve your accuracy and reduce false positives and false negatives. But in Google, it was the challenge was do it with as little data as possible. Whereas at Facebook, it was you know take whatever you need, and if you don't have it, go ahead and try to collect it, and you know can create tools or you can ask users for more data. Uh, but in general, I think the industry is. Uh, going towards more manipulation more uh, more attacks i have never seen the attacks decline you know for my almost 20 years in the industry i thought we reached peak virus or peak spam but somehow the bad guys find a way to just broach new ways of doing it and attack new platforms as people change you know from from computers to laptops to phones and in the future maybe to smart glasses or other devices one thing that i expect will stay contact is how the bad guys on the internet are still finding a way to monetize and uh, influence big, big picture events like elections. Like, but it actually means that the industry is not effective into their countermeasures. Like that, that all the money paid that was paid to employees, companies, all the acquisitions and so on are not that effective. Like, do you think it's correct? And why it's not that effective? Why the amount of attacks are growing but not declining because considering investments we expect over the opposite situation no I, I don't think it's fair to say it's not effective because you have to define what effective means if you didn't have the security industry and all of the money that was invested in countermeasures uh i think the problem would be much worse right like the computers would be unusable the internet would be unusable you can still see that it's generating a ton of value and a ton of money for corporations and people the internet is useful right and you can protect yourself from 99% of spam on the internet, and still you get some through. And that's the testament to the improvement of the spam filters that were developed. Similarly, you know, a ton of people are compromised by malware, but not everyone. And some platforms are safer from this than others, but none of them is completely, uh, completely foolproof. So the efficiency, the effectiveness uh, of security technology varies, but at best, you know, it can, protect you from everything except one in a million uh, email, one in a million text message, one in a million link, but none of it will be completely safe. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's fair to the security industry at which I'm a part of. I think we're always in, inventing new ways to push the envelope and bring it you know, from one in a million to one in a billion. Uh, but we do have a very active and very well-funded adversary, both from individuals and organized groups and the governments, and nation states, so for them, you know, they're working on exactly pushing the envelope towards uh, the other way, right? 
So it's, it's kind of the push and pull, this trade-off scenario has been happening for as long as I've been in the industry. Some days uh, we're winning most of the battles, some days they are, but I, I don't expect that to change in the future. Like people will always try to invent a better mousetrap and, and say, well, buy my product. You know, This is the vendor that is the best vendor and it will keep you safe. But users now understand that truly is impossible. Wow. And uh, they, they learn to, uh, kind of not put all of their trust into just an antivirus or anti-spam or any other kind of vendor protection. They do their backups. They expect that they will get compromised and get hacked and they kind of plan on their remediation measures, right? And they started investing in uh, insurance and actually buying, you know, other ways of protection from themselves. So that's what I've seen in the industry where mm -hmm. people just 100% trust uh, the effectiveness of the products, and that's the correct thing to do. Yeah. Um, if I open the news and like read about like big companies, I often uh, see information about layoffs that are happening now. And uh, the first team that appear on the layoffs now, like typically, is trusted trusted safety team, elections integrity teams, and all teams related to the like protecting uh the company no no no. the first teams that get laid off are the ones that are hiring it's the recruiters that get laid it's, off first yeah. it's the second one probably yeah yeah, yeah. true true but like it, the, the the trust and safety guys always like on the top of the list why do you think it's happening even though everybody stands that uh, it's it's a problem and, and like it's worth investing in this well first of all i can't confirm that i see that right so i i don't want to speculate on why it's happening if i I haven't done the analysis of which teams are most affected by layoffs. I, in fact, apart from recruiters, usually getting the first boot from the companies, I think other teams are proportionally affected by layoffs. Maybe engineers are the last ones to go, um, but I, I see marketing, sales, trust and safety, support uh, in, in some of the companies, which layoffs I did track, they're all affected. So I wouldn't say that like, Trust and safety is unimportant and they're disproportionately targeted by layoffs. That has not been my experience. Okay, okay. Um, if we talk about like companies that are hiring now, so obviously like it's AI companies and uh, like if companies with foundational models and then try to make it. Do you see a trend that they're kind of increasing uh, the amount of people that they're going to hire for trust and safety? Or that still they are still not there, and it needs more time for them to to actually face the problems. I definitely see they're investing in and growing their safety departments, their security departments. I mean, even when you talk about AI, I want to make it clear that like I'm not a big fan of the term. I think it's now uh, well well established, and we won't get away from mentioning it. But like. I was working on the, on the, our startup 10 years ago. And at that time, we were already building machine learning-based detection and deep learning bed detection. So today, that would be called AI. But I didn't call it AI. And in fact, you know, 10 years before that, when I was going to university, I was studying artificial intelligence as a course. And they were teaching us how to build you know, agents that could talk and think and, and self-improve. Uh, and it was understood that there is a fundamental limit of what AI is. I think what we call AI now is just machine learning and uh, you know L generative models and things like that. What we used to call AI now it's called general intelligence, AGI, right? 
where you actually build systems that are truly smart and can operate independently. And that hasn't happened yet. We just built a very cool predictor transformer uh, model that you can chat with and you know half the time it gives you the right answers. So I don't want to underestimate the progress that the industry has made, but it's also like, I don't see any true AI happening anywhere. Yes, we have cars that can be autonomous and can help you drive themselves. We have other really cool tools. But to answer your question, I am tracking several companies, uh, character AI, open AI that I, I know well, and I can see they're investing heavily into keeping trust in them high, right? Like for a company, it's really important to grow their users and the users will only work with you if they trust you. So the part of the reason that you want to have a trust and safety team is that so that any issues that would affect your user's trust, you find them and you deal with them quickly and, and you're transparent. You know, you do you do the best job of protecting your users and telling them about it. Because um, yeah. if you don't, you you will start losing your users. You start the brand will get affected. Um, you'll get uh, news articles about the issues, and and some of these companies got into trouble, right? With uh, with how their algorithm was used, and and hurt real people in the real world, right? Yeah. Um, let's go back to users because we mentioned how important they are, and uh, uh, like I think the vast majority of users who tried to like you know complain about some fake news or report bots or like just go with some kind of complaints to uh, big tech companies, uh, they often like don't hear any response. Uh, the same thing happens with uh, like uh, governments or with a uh, uh, third party security companies try to like, let's say, fight disinformation or um, cover some kind of threats. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you see an issue that uh, like, Kind of disseminating the informational field. Often, it is it is disseminated in in the in big platforms like Facebook, Google, like uh, LinkedIn, and others. You go to these guys, and you don't, and you typically like just face the wall without reply. This is, I think, the sentiment all over the board. So, can you explain as an insider to whom we can ask a question, frankly, why why you see this wall, and why is it so hard to like actually respond and have a more frequent communication? Well, speaking for uh, the experience that I've had at Facebook, for example, um, a lot of people had a lot of problems with their accounts or with their posts or with getting blocked or not getting blocked with changes they wanted to make and, and the, the site wasn't letting them. So a lot of that naturally flowed to me when I was working there because that's the only thing you can do is you find somebody you know who works at the company and you ask them to help, right? And why do you have to do that? Because the public channels are kind of designed for automated, no response mode. Like you, resp you report there is an issue and it goes into a bucket. And then there's another person reports something else, it goes to another bucket. And we, you know, I know Facebook collected these uh, reports and then whatever bucket had the most reports would get looked at and the issues will get addressed. But the users who reported them may never hear and not hear back. The feedback, the feedback was not closed. And I think there were good reasons for that, so partly not having enough uh, resources to respond to everyone. Like, remember, your engineering team is, you know, thousands of people, but your users are billions. So it's just not possible to have enough tech support staff to respond. Others could be for the uh, risk of uh, uh, compliance or liability. Like, you, you don't want to make a decision and, and communicate it if you can get uh, sued for it or, or you get in trouble for it with your users, right? 
So I think there is a reason why those walls exist. I wouldn't say they're completely like solid. I think there are holes in these walls where you can reach through and get something done. For example, when when Facebook uh, uh, celebrities um, and kind of people of influence accounts at Facebook were getting banned because they were being reported by Russians and it was all part of this propaganda war. Um, I, I worked with some of my friends uh, who were Facebook employees to set up a way to to at least communicate these issues in in real time in very quick turnaround to the team at Facebook that could look at them. It doesn't mean that we've you know been able to restore every account that was reported or that we could even give back the information of what happened and why. But there were ways and channels that the right team will look at the problem, and that's all you can hope for. Uh, because of the just the sheer volume of issues and because of the sensitivities involved when you have Russians uh, reporting Ukrainian accounts or vice versa, Ukrainians reporting Russian accounts because of the war between these countries, because this awful aggression of Russia in Ukraine, you have to uh, be very careful as a company when you do this analysis and not make a mistake because there's going to be a lot of a lot of attention to any mistakes you make. So for Facebook, it was important to make sure, and, and Zuckerberg himself, I think he was asked, a question in a town hall about why don't you create an office in Ukraine back back in the day when this this was a, a big big problem then and he was saying well we don't need an office in Ukraine to do our job well and our job is making sure people have a freedom of expression on our site but we're keeping uh, the site uh, friendly and and there is no hate speech policies that, that are being violated by either side of the conflict right so they try to publish the rules of what hate speech is and then they try to be as consistent and transparent about enforcing the rules for both sides. And that's the goal of Facebook. But the reality of it is it's really difficult to adjudicate these issues and interpret whether a poem by Taras Shevchenko, you know, is an actual cultural artifact or if it's actually can be offensive and can be breaking some of these hate speech rules. Yeah. And uh, um, if you can give an advice let's say to a, to a company or to a government body and some uh, like officials with initiative that wanna like come to Facebook, come to, come to Google and really communicate an issue that they found somewhere in their country or abroad, what they should do, like how they can actually bring this, this uh, issue to, to people who can make a decision. Well, I think they are able to get this done now and my advice is to keep doing what they're doing today they usually escalate these issues through the government to their minister you know in in ukraine it would be minister of digital information right uh, in other countries it would be different ministers sometimes to the head of state right and the the head of state the president of the country could write to the the chief executive whether it's facebook or google or OpenAI or nvidia and I'm sure they are very receptive when they get these emails, they forward it to, to their uh, top teams. The teams that usually work with these requests are called government affairs, government relations, all large companies have them, and they will prioritize responding to a government on a certain issue. It doesn't mean that the answer will be uh, you know, good or not. Sometimes meetings will happen, sometimes additional information will be created. But that was my experience in both Facebook and Google is that you will have a foreign government with an issue that will reach out either by email or phone, but it will first get escalated to the highest levels of the government in that country first. And then there will be a government relations team in tandem driving the response, you know, collecting information within the company from engineers, trust and safety, and other folks that know what is happening and what will, will happen and why. And then 
collaborating also with communication folks and PR folks to kind of respond or set up a meeting to explain kind of the go the way of going for it. And, and this has happened many, many times in my career um, with, with various countries. So I don't have any other advice, like there is no shortcuts. It sounds very much solid, like escalated to as high as, as possible on your level, and then you get a higher priority. Like that sounds very that, much uh, straightforward. But um, that's not what people want to hear. They, they want this problem solved immediately, and they want to be able to reach someone. And like, I think that that expectation comes from other products we use in life. Like we, we are a customer in a bank, we can call the bank and get a person on the phone and solve our issue, right? But Facebook and Google and these companies, they're not banks. Their business model is significantly different. Like they have a lot more users than any bank, but they're also not charging their users, right? So bank charges you money for your account and therefore you can expect that support and, and getting that person and having someone resolve your issues. But Facebook charges advertisers, not their users, right? Uh, so advertisers would have a priority on getting answers and getting issues resolved. And there's big teams supporting advertisers. So I think it's fair if you think about how the business is made. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense, I think so. Uh, very much practical question, but in the same direction. Uh, often researchers and guys who work in this sphere complain that big platforms, they cut their APIs, so the access to the data with which each year becomes more and more complex. And I think it's it's fair enough, because if you look on the amount of the data that was shared 2014, 16, even like before COVID, it was more, but now it's really like not that much. So um, uh, was you like kind of, um, do you have any insights on this? And maybe you heard some explanations, why is it happening? So what's your opinion on that? Why less and less data, like even no data often is shared with uh, third party and developers and researchers? No, I, I definitely dealt with a lot of that, uh, having worked uh, with you know on the platforms and, and interfacing with developers. You have to understand that one of the things that uh, Google and Facebook and big companies are pushed to do is to be tougher on attackers and be better on privacy and security. And the side effect of that is they need to raise the standards for developers. So what happens in effect is you may be a developer who are building. Uh, Google Chrome extensions, you know, something I worked on. According to the published API, according to the published standard, and you build some successful big extensions, you have big users, everything's working well, your, pro your program's working, you're making money. But then the platform, Google in this case, says, you know, we're giving you a warning that in a year, we will upgrade the minimum standard of making Google extensions to the next uh, level. And you have to rewrite your applications using this next API because we're shutting down the old API. Or we have to require require that you as a developer are verified or audited or compliant. And you have to prove to us that the data that you're getting of Google users through Google APIs is not being leaked or manipulated. So the reason the companies do it is they want to protect their users, right? Uh, but the developers are now kind of stuck between the rock and the hard place because now they have to they don't get any more money from this, but they're at risk of losing all of their business if they don't uh, move to the latest API. So now it looks like you know, Google is shutting them down. And in reality, it's, it's a lot more complex, right? Google is pursuing its own incentives, which is to keep the trust in the brand and keep the ultimate end users complaints down. Uh, because it, you know, not every developer is bad, but the bad ones are the ones that are benefiting 
from this lax policies or the outdated standards in older APIs. So as Google pushes more and more people to adopt the, the recent uh, technologies, that locks out some of the developers that don't have the the expertise or the resources to upgrade their systems. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I was asking more maybe about like uh, kind of social networks and you know like the getting data about like a public data about the users because this is what uh, typically concerned. Like there is some stuff online that is already there. I know like on your Facebook page you have like a name and so on, or there is a Google search that. Like if you search, everybody see results. Like, right. but getting something through the API, getting more data through the API to actually analyze the response either for business purposes or for like uh, some analytical, like revealing disinformation, as in our case, is harder and harder. So, yeah. uh, can you explain like why it's becoming harder and harder? Because previously, like, it was not that complex as now. So, what what what, what changed? Well, I don't know if I can explain it. I can only offer a theory, you know, speculation of what I think about it. And I would have to go back to the time when I worked at Facebook and the conversation I had with Mark Zuckerberg. It was in a public setting. You know, we used to have town halls and I was always the, the guest at these town halls trying to sit in the first row and ask as many questions as I can. Back at the time, the company was a couple of hundred people. So it wasn't that big. So one of the questions I had was uh, Zynga, who was making games at the time was uh, making a lot of money it was the top developer and top client of facebook it was some of the money it was making it was giving to facebook through the through the revenue sharing but through that it was valued a lot and i was suggesting mark we should buy zynga right there's a lot of revenue living on the table and mark said no their their valuation over time will not grow as much as ours will so any money i'll spend on them right now would not be justified i wouldn't want to give up you know any part of equity of facebook buying zynga and at the time i didn't agree with them but now i think it comes back to what you're talking about the priority of giving data to developers and building the value of your network through the platform through you know the app store or through the the apis it's very high in the beginning when you when you're starting out but when you're a mature platform uh, like, like Facebook, a lot of the stuff you can build yourselves. You don't actually need developers as much as you used to. And in fact, when you do build these features in-house and then you have third-party developers that are building the same features and they're competing with each other, you get into this kind of difficult waters where you, you're in trouble with uh, potentially the antitrust and the Congress. You don't want to be too big, squishing developers, but you also don't want to be giving up revenue that would come directly to you. 100% of revenue that you make comes to you, but on a platform, only 30% or 15% does, right? So I think it comes to do with incentives of the big networks. And I was listening to Mark Zuckerberg now, you know, almost 13 years later when I worked with him. Um, yesterday, I was listening to his interview, and he was being asked, you know, whether you use uh, public data or private chat conversations of users of Facebook for training your meta AI models, which as we all know, meta has open sourced the llama models, but now they're also launching new agents, their own uh, agents in chat and messenger and, and Instagram. So he said, no, we absolutely don't train it on private data, but he shied away from answering whether they do it on the public data, because I can see that he is kind of, uh, his, his reputation has been hit uh, and, and people don't like Mark Zuckerberg as much as they used to, not that they really loved him before, 
But because of the privacy issues, because of Cambridge Analytica, and because of many, many, almost now several generations of people that grew up on Facebook or were using Facebook a lot and then quit Facebook, because it, it is associated with privacy violations. And as part of that, if you want to rebuild your reputation, you want to limit the amount of data that's available to developers, right? So I could see how strategically it doesn't make sense for them to keep these APIs running that allow anyone in the world to build products based on Facebook, because now they can do it all themselves and also uh, appear that they're more uh, privacy-centric and privacy-aware and kind of be the brand that Apple is in a way with iPhone, where iPhone is actually being competitive on that message of, you know, this is where privacy is real. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense even in the context of what we are working on. Like, I'm uh, I'm hearing your response from you and, like, you know, applying it immediately to, to what we develop in Ossible. So even though you may, like, uh, have the best intentions in the world to protect users, to decrease the amount of, like, uh, information operations and threats, still it may be not always aligned with the global policy of the platforms, which is always like keeping less and uh, keeping more and sharing less, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to talk with you about like one more thing that changed life of all of us: this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, you was like at the day of invasion, you was in Google. So could you please share a bit more context on how Google was like? Uh, preparing for the invasion was there any preparation uh, during the like all the troops build up or it was a surprise for the company what was actually happening on the very first day uh in in google for you personally yeah i i remember that day and uh i i was watching the news when it happened and and right away i called called my parents in ukraine and i told them please put the plan in motion and this was the plan that uh, we talked about weeks before because I personally uh, was was aware and believed that invasion would start. Nobody knew like whether it would start specifically on the day that it started or a couple of days before or later. But from the information that I was getting, including from Google, I could see the likelihood is very hard, high of the invasion. And all of the steps that Putin was taking led me to believe that he will he will go forward with it. Um, yes, there were some exercises at Google that helped my team prepare for how do we handle the invasion. As you know, Google does such exercises for most global events where we have to anticipate them, and we have to prepare incident response plans of who will do what. Uh, you know, I can't disclose too much internal Google information. But I'm trying to answer as much as I can uh, without getting into trouble. But I do, I was aware uh, and I knew kind of the war was about to begin. Uh, I right away called my boss at Google and said, I will need some time, personal time. Uh, and and you know, I, took, I took a break when the war began uh, before coming back to work. Uh, but I could see what my team was doing. Right away, they could uh, see the effects on Google products from the invasion. You know, there was issues with Google Maps and how uh, you could see on the roads and traffic conditions kind of where the Russian tanks were, where the evacuation routes were. So that was very much reported in the news. And there was a lot of other things that were not reported in the news that were very quickly escalated and teams were working on trying to address, right? There were, there were escalations from the Ukrainian government. Um, there were 
considerations for leaving uh, Russia as a business. Uh, and I think some of those things came true later, but not right away. So there was a lot of things happening. There was a lot of Ukrainians working at Google that, uh, that started reacting and kind of um, working on advocating on Ukrainian behalf and bringing to their bosses. You know, everybody wrote to their manager, but some wrote to their VPs or, or I'm sure Sundar as a CEO had a lot of letters on, you know, what are we doing? What are we going to do? Can we do enough to help Ukraine withstand this awful attack? Yeah. Um, and like, my, my question is that one of one of actions that Google and other big companies taking, they cut Russian market, like partially or fully, but they limited amount of services as they do there. Um, was it actually a big deal? Uh, was it like something, was it a, an important step for the companies? Or as you think, there was not that much business for them and one more kind of a symbolic political step for the think about this? Well, I think when Google started responding to, uh, to the war, right? Um, I can refer, you know, to the boss of my boss at the time was the president of global affairs. Uh, of Google, and he was uh, tasked with making a lot of decisions, but also publicly communicating what is Google doing or going to be doing. And a lot of focus was on focusing on the safety and security of the Ukrainian users. But what you're asking me about is what did Google do in Russia or what they didn't do in Russia and why? Um, they very quickly paused the ads in Russia. Uh, and that means that they stopped making money in Russia. And that was important for them to do. And it was not insignificant. I don't know if it was 1% or 2% or more. But they right, right away said, we don't want to make any money from Russia as it's attacking Ukraine. But that's not quite the same as to say as they cut the service in Russia. Because mm -hmm. most of Google products are free. And if you post the ads, you're not making money from it. But the products like uh, Search or, or YouTube or others are still working. So I think after they decided to demonetize and, and stop making money in Russia, then they started deliberating on whether or not to actually uh, cut the services. And there the argument was, um, how is it used? And is it contributing to the democracy or is it hurtful to the democracy? Is Russia using these services to attack Ukraine or are the Russians using it in their daily life or even is the opposition to Russian regime using them, right? So what's the kind of the blowback if we cut these services, will it hurt, hurt or help? And I think the voices that said, we want Russians to see the real news that are unfiltered and not you know, government sponsored, uh, and they can see those things on YouTube, those voices prevailed. And as far as I know, YouTube is still available in Russia. Uh, at least they didn't shut it down in the first weeks of invasion. And that was the argument. We want to have a way for the, for the Russians to read something that is not propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing all these insights. And uh, like, I want to ask about like another project that you do uh, about Nova Ukraine and uh, the uh, the charity that raised uh, more than nine, 90 million dollars for Ukrainians. So, can you share a bit more about like your ongoing projects, your ongoing fundraising, and maybe we can ask some guys who listen to this to to contribute? Yeah, absolutely. Nova Ukraine has been become the project of my life. I am volunteering there on the board of directors, and uh, I am also a part of the team that does fundraising for the organization. We have been able to 
to support a lot of groups in Ukraine, volunteer groups, big charities, smaller charities, also schools and hospitals, uh, educational institutions. We've, we've tried to have a very big mission and it's to help the people of Ukraine, right? And we started not with this invasion, we started in 2013. So we've had this experience of almost 10 years now to build up the best operations to help Ukraine in the world. That's where we pride ourselves with. Because a lot of us are engineers. We did it with a, with a kind of software and automation tools in mind, right? We deployed most tools that startup companies use. We deployed at Nova Ukraine. We deal with a lot of uh, requests, like to your earlier point, how does Facebook respond when billions of people ask for issues? You know, we're not quite Facebook scale, but we also have thousands of people asking us for help. And we were able to track and respond to all of this because we've used uh, CRM. We actually automated a lot of things through Salesforce. Uh, so we're not a typical charity because we have a lot of engineers building code that automate operations for giving grants, reviewing grants, uh, receiving, uh, supporting documentation. Because like the main kind of cycle that, that we do is we find a donor, we tell him about Nova Ukraine, he gets inspired and he gives us let's say $100,000 and he tells them in general terms, I want to support education or I want to fight corruption or I want to uh, give it to Ukrainian kids. And then we try to match him with a project that we know about or we want to start a project driven by our own volunteers to, to get uh, that going. And then the next step is to actually receive photos and videos and, and evidence that that project is working well and it's delivering impact and communicating that back to the donor and keeping that relationship going so that that project can live and throughout uh, the years improve and grow. So I'm very, very proud of the team. We have uh, over 3,000 volunteers in Ukraine. We have um, several hundred in the States. We now have paid staff and offices in Kiev and Lviv and Kharkiv. So we scaled quite a bit in these 10 years. Um, and the way to learn about us is novaukraine.org. The way to support us is novaukraine.org slash donate or get involved. Um, you know, we, we always need volunteers. We always need donations. But more than anything, we need people who can tell our story. And uh, especially folks in Ukraine who need help, we want them to know how to reach out to us for help, right? So they can do it through the website. Also, a lot of people left Ukraine, became internally displaced people or, or became refugees. We are working on programs for those people as well. So there is a portal. Uh, for refugees called refugees.novaukraine.org and we're doing a lot of work through that as well. So I could I could talk for hours about Nova Ukraine, but suffice it to say, go to novaukraine.org, check out what we're doing, see if you want to join us and help wherever you are, anywhere in the world. I personally know a lot of people who are involved, either as volunteers or who get some help from Nova Ukraine. So guys, if you uh, listen to us and want to like contribute something to Ukraine and you have no time, but just like have money, you can do it with Nova Ukraine. If you have time and you want to contribute something, you also can go to Nova Ukraine. So it's the best option for you if you're still looking for a way to, to somehow like contribute to, um, uh, to Ukrainian cause. Nick, thank you for uh, talking today. It was really insightful. Uh, hope it will be interesting for all the uh, our users uh, of our podcast and uh, uh, thank you guys for listening to us. See you next time. Thank you, Dmitro. And Slava Ukraina. Hello, I'm Slava. Thanks. Very cool. Uh,